Well, first of John 5 is uh, typical of John's writing. It got quite a few difficult uh, terms there that we have to, have to get sort of used to. Uh, one of the biggest ones is this idea of eternal life, and that's uh, a theme that he carries on from, uh, from his record of the Lord's words in his Gospel. Let's just uh, focus on verse 11, 1 John 5, 11. The witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, you're aware that Jesus, uh, throughout uh, John's Gospel, is recorded as saying that he gave us now eternal life, and yet we're going to die. So what does this mean, that we have been given eternal life? Well, it seems to me that insofar as we live as Jesus is now, insofar as we live the kingdom principles of life, which are outlined in, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount, we are living the kind of life that we will eternally live in the kingdom. So the promise of eternal life now and the possibility of that life right now does not mean that we will not physically die. We have no immortal soul. We're going to be unconscious when we die. The hope is, for those who are baptized into Christ, is the resurrection when the Lord Jesus returns. That's the, uh, that's the hope which, uh, which that is. Um, <clears throat> And yet, we can have the eternal life now. Clearly, eternal life is being used, uh, not in the sense of sort of uh, the eternity of it, as in the, uh, the simple uh, timelessness, immortality of it all, but rather to talk about the quality, the nature of that life. And verse 11 really says that, that that eternal life is in his Son. So the life in Christ, properly lived in Christ, is the kind of life that we will eternally live. And in that sense, we have a foretaste of the kingdom now. We can maybe take too far the idea that what we shall hereafter be is hid from mortal eyes. Well, maybe physically, yes, maybe. Uh, but the essence of that life, of that kingdom life, is known to us and can be experienced right now. That does not mean we are fully in the kingdom, because we are held back by human nature, by, by the world around us not having been changed, and uh, our mortality. But the nature of the kind of life that we shall eternally live can be experienced now, and should be, and must be experienced now. So that there will, in a sense, be a continuity, in a spiritual sense, in a if you like, in an internal sense, between the kind of persons we are today and who we shall eternally be. And in that sense, you personally, I personally, Duncan personally, will be saved. The idea of personal salvation does not mean that we shall be changed out of all recognition. We shall be changed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies shall be changed. That's what we desperately need. But we personally shall be saved. And in that I think you see the, the enormous colossal importance of human personality, of who we are inside ourselves, the real essential you and me right now. Who we are in our hearts, who we are when no one's watching as it were, who you are really in your idle moments in your mind, what you're really thinking about, where the focus of your heart and life really is. Because that is who you are, and that is what shall be saved. 
so then <clears throat> that is, I think, what he's uh, talking about when he talks all through his writings, really, about the eternal life. But, of course, there's a bit of a gasp by all of us that is that really so? And in verse 13, I think he recognizes that. He says, I've written all this to you, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. I understand that he, he realizes that his readership, and that's us, somewhat, uh, not doubt this, but uh, have a slight raised eyebrow. That is this really so? And he says, yes, I'm writing that you might know that you really do have eternal life. Uh, and that uh, you might believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, it seems to me that what he's uh, saying there is there is a kind of an upward spiral here. That if you believe on the name of the Son of God, as he's saying all the way through, really, like verse 10, verse 12, if you believe on the Son of God, then you have the eternal life. And he says, I'm writing that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, that you might be strengthened in that uh, belief to go up the next side of the upward spiral in all this and believe again on the name of the Son of God. Believe even more deeply so that again you will experience even more profoundly that eternal life. And then he gives, I think, an example of what he means in practice about the uh, the eternal life and being able to live it now. And he gives it uh, in terms of prayer. Uh, 14. This is the boldness or the confidence which we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So he's writing to people who have heard him say that you've, you've got the eternal life, you are living now the kind of life you will eternally live, and he's trying to just persuade them, persuade us as well. This is the confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions which we asked of him. And he goes on to talk about praying for your brother who has sinned a sin not unto death. Now, I think what he's saying is that in God's kingdom, in the future eternal life, then there would be no such uh, thing as us being somehow out of sync with God, of our... Uh, prayers not being heard and uh, things like that. But I think what he's saying here is that part of living the eternal life now is that whatever you ask according to his will, he hears you. Now we may think, but I ask things and I don't get them. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you ask according to his will, he hears us. Now he's alluding to the words of Jesus that he recorded in John 15, where the Lord Jesus says that if his words, the words of Jesus, abide in us, we will ask what we will, and God will hear us. And here it's put slightly differently, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But there in John 15, if his word abides in us, which of course expresses his will, then we will ask whatever we want, and he will hear us, if we abide in him. So I think what he's saying is that insofar as God's word abides in us, the word of Jesus, our will becomes his, and we ask for things that we perceive and know are his will, and for sure those prayers are heard. So 
you shouldn't think that I, yeah, well, look, I, I prayed for a load of things and I didn't get it, so therefore uh, I don't experience the eternal life. All that means is that in those parts of your life where you ask for those things, um, you didn't correctly understand his will. Because, of course, the whole business of our will merging with his is a lifelong process. And so that is, I, I think, what he's, uh, what he's getting at. He's saying that one foretaste of the kind of life we will eternally live is that in this life, our will becomes his and his will becomes ours. So that what we ask is definitely what he wants to give, to, to, uh, to give us. Now, this very profound uh, idea, and it's not as simple as keep reading your Bible and therefore your prayers will get answered. Because if his words abide in you, therefore uh, you will ask whatever you want, you will, and you'll get it. it it's more profound than that. It, it, it's connected with Bible reading, but it's connected with Bible reading only insofar as our exposure to his will, how he has worked in history, you know, all that historical content which there is in the Bible, that's an awful lot of the Bible is, simply history. The value of all that is that you see revealed how God works and the sort of will that he has and what is his will uh, towards us. And bit by bit, when you, you start to perceive that, I mean, it, it can be a situation that, that you encounter that you know requires a certain resource to resolve. And if you really sense that God wants to do this, you pray for that and it comes. Now, this is not the same as saying, oh yeah, well if you, if you just need a bit of money, just pray to God and uh, you'll get it. No, absolutely not. The prosperity gospel is absolute nonsense. It's just the very opposite of what the Bible teaches. Praying for what you want is neither here nor there. It's praying according to God's will. Uh, and insofar as we begin to perceive that will, and it becomes our will, we will have far fewer examples of prayers that don't get answered. Because what you pray for and what you really want starts to change as your will becomes part of his you don't, for example, keep praying for your own personal blessing in this, that, and the other, because that, that, that is, uh, you start to perceive that that is not his will. His will is to show his glory in, in human life uh, and, and to bring about, ultimately, his kingdom. And your human situation becomes less and less important in, in that sense. And if you do ask for anything about yourself, it will be only in order to give it to, to others, because you sense that this is his will. So this uh, binding of our will and God's, so that his will is our will and our will becomes his, uh, this is a, a process. This is a process. This is why when people, I think, first believe and they first get baptized, uh, they pray for a lot of things that they don't get answered. But your, your experience of prayer with God, I think, should get better as you start to realize that prayer is not just a shot in the dark. Like, well, maybe, who knows, God might give me this, so I'll just ask him, I'll put it on the list. You, you start to mature to realize that it's not about that at all. And this 
experience of knowing his will and having those prayers answered, um, this is a foretaste of the eternal life. Now, we're not there yet, you know, and therefore there are mismatches between our will and God's will, and there will be to our dying day. But over time, you sense that happening. And this is the confidence, the boldness that we can have. Now, I'd like to just uh, think a little bit about this, this word translated confidence or boldness. Because he, uh, he says there, this is the confidence, the boldness which we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So he's saying that we can have confidence in prayer. And the same word is actually used in Ephesians 3 verse 12, also about prayer, where it says that in Christ we have boldness in our access to God in prayer through Christ. And yet within the first of John, the, the same word is used about our boldness in the day of judgment. Just look back, chapter 4 verse 17, chapter 2 verse 28 that we might have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment before him. Now, what that means then is that our confidence, our boldness before God in prayer now is the same as we will have when we stand before him at the last day. And it's really brought together in Hebrews 4.16 where again the same word is used that because of the Lord Jesus' work for us we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Now, what is the throne of grace? Is the throne of grace prayer now? You come before God's throne now, or is it the throne of grace of the last day, the day of judgment? And the answer is quite clearly both, because this word is used as a, here in 1 John 5, 14, about uh, our confidence in prayer now, and it's also used... Uh, we've seen in, in 1 John 2.28.4.17 about our confidence, our boldness before the final day of judgment. So then, when you come before God now, that is actually the same uh, attitude that you will come before him with at the last day, when you again come into his special intense presence. And yet this word boldness is also used really about our general attitude. Let's look back there in uh, 1 John 3.21. Uh, again, you've got, uh, got exactly the same word, 3.21. If our heart condemn us not, we have boldness toward God. So this idea of uh, boldness, of confidence, is used about our, our attitude in, in life generally. Hebrews 10.35, don't throw away your boldness, your confidence, but keep it. And the word is very often used about our boldness in witness to this world. You've got it uh, at least five times in the Acts of the Apostles, about the, the boldness, the confidence, the openness of the, the disciples as they preached. And the word is also used four times, just in John, about uh, the boldness or the openness of Christ's own preaching, which of course is a pattern for us. Um, we're told, you know, John 18 verse 20, the Lord Jesus says that I spoke openly to the world, and it's this word, boldly, confidently, to the world. 
he spoke openly, boldly, confidently. And here in John 1, John 4:17, as he is and as he was, so are we to be in this world. As he was a bold and confident witness, so are we, because we are in him. And all that is true of him in that sense becomes true of us. So then, our attitude generally, within ourselves, towards God, that we, we have, is the same attitude that we have in the end when we come before him in prayer, and it will be the same attitude when we come before him at the Day of Judgment. Now we can assume, and assume wrongly, that somehow when you come to God in prayer, you as it were, put on your best clothing, uh, spiritually speaking, and sort of prepare yourself and psych yourself up and sort of do your hair up pretty kind of thing and uh, put your makeup on and, and come before God kind of pretty. But of course that's nonsense. Of course that isn't what happens at all. Who we are as we sit here and as we walk down the street and as we eat our food and cook our food and the rest of it, that is who you are before God anyway when you pray. And likewise at the Day of Judgment, we won't sort of be able to put on some other persona, some very serious persona, and come before God. Now those who are accustomed to going to formal church meetings maybe have that experience of putting on certain clothing to go to church, or even if you don't uh, worry about your clothing, uh, having a certain kind of uh, appearance or spirit to you or attitude to you that, you know, I'm in the meeting. I'm at church, or whatever it might be. But, you know, that is not how it ultimately is. You can, you know, you can do your hair up pretty, and you can put your, put your best jacket on and the rest, and, and go to church, and, and go to the meeting, and uh, pray, and uh, appear to be so, you know, involved spiritually, and so engaged. And then you get in your car, or get on a bus, or whatever, and go home again into another sort of attitude of mind. That's not how it's going to be at the Day of Judgment. It's not how it is in prayer either. The boldness, the confidence that we should have in life in Christ is the same attitude we have in prayer before the throne of grace now, and it's the same attitude we will have when we finally come before that judgment throne at the last day. Now, that is how it is. And yet, even Paul struggled with this. This is a very high standard that John is bringing before us here. Because in Ephesians 6.19, he uses this word boldly, and he says, Can you please pray for me, that I might preach boldly as I ought to be preaching? In other words, he felt that he wasn't as bold and confident as he ought to be. And if that's the Apostle Paul, then of course, we also have got the same, the same problem, the same issue. But my point is that who we are in our heart of hearts now is who we are in prayer before God, and who you are in prayer before God as you come before his throne is who you will be as you come before him at the last day. You can't, as I say, do your hair up pretty or put your, put your jacket on and do your tie up and all the rest of it and put on a certain air Lock yourself into a certain uh, engaged mentality that, you know, oh, I'm at the meeting. Oh, yeah, like, this is God. Oh, yeah, this is like Jesus and all that. 
Look, no, who we are toward him is who we are 24-7. And as I say, we shall be saved. Duncan will be saved. You will be saved. Uh, not the airs that you put on, but the, the essence of the person. Now, this is the essence, as I say, of Christianity, to be spiritually minded, to believe, as John keeps on telling us uh, in, in profound ways and in just dead simple language, that you have eternal life, that you are saved, that you have got it, that you are in Christ, right? You've been baptized into the Lord Jesus. All that's true of him becomes true of us. And that's as simple as that. Now, he goes on, I think, to give uh, an example about prayer, where he, he's talked about um, us uh, having confidence because we ask according to his will and he hears us. And uh, I said that uh, this is alluding back to John 15, where if the words of Jesus abide in us, we shall ask what we will and he will hear us because his will becomes ours. And then he gives, I think, an example of this when he goes on to talk about praying for those who have fallen into sin, for your brother. Now, it's of course true that if you don't want to be in God's kingdom, you will not be. And it's also true that uh, you can't just get into God's kingdom if you happen to have good friends who happen to be good at praying for you. And yet, and yet, there is another uh, aspect to this, that in some cases, in the cases of sin not unto death, we really can influence the uh, I don't know how to put it like this but the, uh, the possibility of salvation of our brother if anyone see his brother and I think this must be a brother in Christ sin a sin which is not unto death he shall ask in prayer and he, that is God shall give him that's the brother who's praying life, and that's eternal life I think in the uh, context of John for them that sin not unto death. Now, James 5 seems to be saying the same. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. And I think the sick refers there to those struck down with sickness as a result of their, their sin, as seemed to happen in the first century. You obviously got Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And in First Corinthians 11, 30, it seems to imply that some were weak and sickly at the breaking of bread because they had been struck down for their sin. But anyway, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and I count that as um, people who've sinned, but not the sin unto death. And if you have committed sins, they should be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another. He which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. So then, our prayer for others can really bring forth their forgiveness and their saving from death to an extent and so I think that uh, he, he's he, this is all in his context he's saying that this is part of uh, knowing that you are praying according to the will of God he's giving a, a parade example I think of how to pray according to the will of God and that is to pray for your brother who you see has sinned but not unto death. And that God will hear you 
and will save that person. Now, if that is correct, and of course I think this is the correct interpretation, that's sort of uh, axiomatic, I guess, but uh, if this is correct, this really uh, indicates uh, how much we should be praying, how much we should be caring. Rather than looking at each other's behaviour and shrugging our shoulders and thinking, well, he's not a bad bloke, but yeah, that's not a very smart thing to be doing. Uh, yeah, well, anyway, that's his life, not mine. You know, the whole point is no. Pray and care for each other, because if you don't, maybe that person won't live eternally, or because you didn't pray and care for them. It's not that God, as it were, would just save people anyway. So then there are huge potentials in prayer. And we know it's the will of God to save us. It's the will of God that every single person who is baptised should be in God's kingdom. When you see your brother or your sister failing, and you know we see it all the time, this is, I think, the point of ecclesial life, of, of not just sitting at home, but actually getting out there and mixing and meeting with each other, you see each other's failures. I mean, you just do. And what are we to do? We are to pray, knowing that that prayer for them must be according to God's will. He wants that brother or that sister to be in his kingdom. And you pray for that person, okay, not in cases of sin unto death, whatever that uh, exactly means, but, um, you know, cases of sin, which is a sin which is not unto death, and you will be heard. You definitely will be heard. So this is a great challenge. Because it really does ask an awful lot of us. But in that process, and this is the example he gives of praying for those who are sinning but not unto death, you will find that your will becomes the will of God. And his will is yours. And that process, that experience of binding together with him, is of itself a very wonderful thing. Because, of course, the whole business of caring for the salvation of another binds you even closer to the Lord Jesus, who is that person's saviour, as well as your own. And this is all the essence of the eternal life, which the sort of things we shall be doing, in essence, eternally, we can start doing now.